Today's topic is the third principle of the 13 principles of faith, namely the idea that God is incorporeal, meaning that he does not have physicality, he doesn't have a body, he doesn't share characteristics of a body. This is principle number three. We've had so far principle number one, which is that God exists. Principle number two, that God is one. There is a singular force of power all coalesced in the same entity. And we're up to principle number three, that God is not corporeal. And we're going to go through the Rambam in his elucidation of the 13 principles and in his other writings. And I also want to read an essay that my grandfather wrote on the subject that I think draws out some valuable lessons and insights and makes it a little bit more relevant for us. So the Rambam tells us the third principle, which is the negation of corporeality, and that is that we believe that this one entity that we have been talking about, i.e. God, is not a body, nor a bodily force, nor do bodily characteristics be attributed to him, such as movement or rest, dwelling, and the like, not essentially and not by happenstance. So this entity is not a body. It does not behave like a body. And therefore, of course, the Talmud, the Talmud tells us the book of Hadidah, page 15a, that neither bonding nor separation, meaning that God is not composed of parts that can be bonded together, there's no beginning, there's no end. It's an infinite existence and if an infinite uh, entity. And he quotes the verse, the verse in Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 40, 25, to whom can you compare me to and I be equal, says God, meaning God is incomparable. There's nothing that we could have that we could compare God to. There's no overlap between God and anything else. And therefore, says the Rambam, if God had a body and we have a body, then God is comparable because we are the same, at least on, on some measure. And therefore, that verse in, its, in itself proves that God is incorporeal, has no body, because if he is incomparable. It must be that we who have a body don't compare and therefore God doesn't have a body. Okay, now the problem with that is that there's many instances in the Torah and other other writings that do seem to compare God to bodies. God walks, walk with God, God stands, God sits, God speaks. All that says the Rambam, that's an analogy, it's metaphorical. It's a, it's an anthropomorphism. It's not real. God essentially doesn't behave like a body. Maybe the way it's conveyed to us is a way that we understand. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that the Torah speaks to humans in a language that humans understand. And therefore, because we're, we're bodies and bodies need to be spoken to in a specific way, just like you speak to a child in, in via analogy, in a way that they, they can understand it, the Torah speaks to us in the way that we can understand it. And finally, this third principle tells us the Rambam, this third principle is sourced in the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it tells us that at Sinai, we did not see no image, we did not see no picture, we did not visualize a physical entity, not a body, not a bodily force. So that's the third principle of the 13 principles of faith, to be part of the Jewish nation, to be in the framework of people who are not booted from all from Allah, you have to believe that God is not a body, does not behave like a body. So we can break this idea down into four different parts. 
Number one, there's two concepts that are included in this principle. God is not a body and does not behave like a body, has no characteristics of a body. Number two, that the Raman proves this from Scripture. Scripture tells us God's incomparable. If he had a body, he would be comparable. And consequently, ergo, he must not have a body. Number three, we have to reconcile the contradictions in the Torah. The Torah seems to indicate that God does have characteristics of a body. The Ramas tells us, no, the Torah speaking to us in a way that we understand. And finally, the source of this is the verse in Deuteronomy that at Sinai, they did not see an image. So this is a very interesting idea that at Sinai, which was the pinnacle of human experience, we had prophecy, we experienced God in, in a way that no other humans, certainly no other nation has experienced. And specifically, as a result of that, there's a concern that we're going to animate God. We're going to degrade God and we're going to give him physical characteristics. So I want to read those verses because I think they, they do convey that picture in a more of a clear way. So beginning with chapter 4, verse 9 of Deuteronomy, Moshe tells the Jewish people, be careful, guard your soul exceedingly, don't forget what your eyes saw, you should not have it depart from your heart, all the days of your life, and for them to your to your children, to your grandchildren, the day that you stood before God at Horev, which is another name of Sinai. And God told me, i.e. Moses, gather the nation, I'm going to tell them the words to, that they should fear me their whole lives, all the days that they're living on, on this land, teach it to their children. You got close to the mountain, the mountain was burning with fire to the heart of heaven, there was darkness, there was cloud, there was dense cloud. And God spoke to you from amidst the fire, words you hear, but an image you don't see, you only, seems to say that you only see words. And he told you his covenant, and he instructed you the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two stone tablets. And me, he instructed on that day, to teach you the laws and the statues so that you should obey them in the land that you are crossing over into the land of Canaan. And here's a critical verse. And you should be exceedingly careful for your soul to remember that you did not see any image on the day that God spoke to you at Chorev from amidst the fire. Maybe you'll become corrupt and you'll make sculpted images, any likeness, any image, a male or female, a form of an animal, a form of a bird, a form of anything that creeps on the ground, a form of the fish. Maybe you may lift your eyes up to heaven. You'll see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly constellations. You'll go astray. You'll bow down to them. You'll worship them. And you're going to obviously make a huge blunder. So I think it's very interesting that specifically the Sinai experience could have been a stepping stone to a, a, a big mistake to equate God with a body. And specifically, amidst the verses talking about Sinai, we're told specifically to not make that mistake, to not draw the wrong conclusion out of this Sinai experience. Now, the Rambam elaborates on this idea, on this principle in his other writings. Like we mentioned in the past, the Rambam wrote three major works the 13 principles are found in his commentary on Mishnah. The Rama, when he was a teenager, he wrote a commentary on all of Mishnah. In fact, he was the first one to do that. All 63 books of Mishnah, he wrote a commentary on it. Included in that, in the introduction to 
the final chapter of the book of Sanhedrin, he writes a very long essay on reward and punishment, and he clarifies and he canonizes the 13 principles of faith. The Ram, of course, wrote a famous work of, of philosophy, of Torah philosophy, called the Moranavuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed. And his magnum opus, his greatest work, is the Mishnah Torah, which is essentially all of oral Torah in 14 books, sometimes called the Yad HaChazaka. So in the very first chapter of the very first session, of the very first book, the Ram talks about this idea. So again, it's a principle, something that has to be clarified from the very beginning. And he elaborates on the points that he spoke about in his commentary to Mishnah. And not only does he elaborate them, he expands the idea a little bit more. I think it gives us more of a complete picture of what idea is being conveyed here. So he tells us another point. So previously we were told that God is incomparable, and if he was a human, or if he was a body, he would be comparable to humans. So therefore he's not a body. He has another point in his other work by telling us that if God had a body, he would have limitations. He would have scarcity. He would have an end. He would be finite. Because it's not possible to be a body and be infinite. And whoever has a body has an end, has finiteness, and his strength also has limitations. And God, after all, because his strength is infinite and never-ending, And he proves it because the galaxies in the universe are always spinning. Therefore, he does not have a body which has strength that is limited and therefore strength that wanes. The force propelling the world, the force propelling the galaxies is infinite. God's infinite. And therefore, God's not a body. So there's another another idea here that the world, the engine, so to speak, that runs the world that we would call God, It doesn't get weaker. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't dwindle. If it was a body, it would be limited to the constructs of finiteness and would have scarcity. And like if you have fuel, the fuel eventually runs out. The power eventually weakens and it eventually dissipates. But God has no scarcity and therefore his power and vitality don't wane. You know, one of my colleagues, Rabbi Cohn, works with us at Torch. He brought to the tour center, uh, like a pendulum, but it's like, um, it's like five suspended metal balls that you swing one from one end and it hits the other four and then it prompts the last one to jump out and then it hits the other one. If you take two of the metal balls and you drop them and then it hits the other three and then the other two from the other end, they swing out and they hit back and eventually it, it looks kind of cool. You take one and it just it looks like that one ball is like kind of jumping through back and forth. But you do it and it's kind of cool for 10 seconds and then it slows down and eventually it stops. And that's the, the, the essence of kind of finiteness. You, you have power, you have fuel, you have energy and then it eventually gets used up and you have to get more energy. If you want to keep on swinging, you have to keep on swinging it. And we see the world and the galaxies and the force, the invisible force that drives it all, it doesn't weaken, it doesn't diminish. And that's the Ramam's proof that God is not a body, a second proof to this idea. I would say it's a logical proof to this idea that there is a force that, again, is invisible. We call that force God, 
but is not body, which is a term for limited. It's not finite. It is infinite. The Ram adds another verse to prove his point. So previously we had the verse from Isaiah. We had the verse from Deuteronomy. He quotes a verse in Joshua chapter 2. The verse says, For Hashem your God is the God in the heavens above and in the earth below. And says the Rambam, a body cannot exist in multiple places simultaneously. So if God's the God of heaven, if God were to be a body, is he the God of heaven or the God of the earth? Not both. And here we see that the description of, of God that we get in scripture is one of simultaneously existing in heavens above and the earth below. Clearly, God is not a body, meaning that God is not bound to the constraints of time and space can exist simultaneously in two different places, and that is proof from Scripture that God is infinite, not finite. And the Ramah spends more, I would say, more energy focusing on trying to reconcile these anthropomorphisms. So he doesn't just talk about anthropomorphisms, he he starts to go through them uh, one at a time. So for example, he says, under the feet of God, right, after the in chapter 24 of Exodus, it's about under the feet of God, or the, the finger of God, the Egyptians say, or the, the hand of God, or the eyes of God, or the ears of God. These are all actual citations from Scripture. What does that mean? And he gives the same answer by telling us that this is all tailored for the mind of humans. They only understand the physical. They understand the concept of bodies. And the Torah speaks to us in a language that we understand. And it's all nicknames, or it's it's old euphemisms. For example, I quote another verse, when I wet my flashing blade. Does God have a blade? Does God use a blade to kill people or to wreak havoc? No, of course, that's an analogy speaking to us in a way that will make an impression. And he brings another proof. He says, uh, one prophet, quoting the prophet Daniel, he sees God and he says, quote, this is Daniel 7, 9, his garment was like white snow. And then Isaiah 63, God's garment is red. So is it red or is it white? Again, these are analogies, these are euphemisms, these are anthropomorphisms to convey a message, but not to say that he literally has garments or that he literally has garments of different colors. And then he says, another example, Moses, at the splitting of the sea, Hashem Ishmael Chama. God is a man of war, so to speak. That's what Moses says at the swing of the sea. At Sinai, our sages tell us that Moses saw God as if he was a chazan. He was a cantor wrapped in a talit. What does that mean? Which one is he? The answer is that he's neither. The image, the form was all a prophecy, was all a vision. But the truth, the essence of God is something that's beyond human comprehension. To understand it in a true way, and therefore we shouldn't even ponder it. And he quotes another verse in Job that uh, you won't be very successful. It's it's futile to try to understand God Himself, because again, if you're a body, the the, the notions of of physics, the 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 fixed rigidity of finiteness, it just precludes us from understanding infinite. Itself And therefore, the Torah says, speak to us in a language that we understand. The Torah is God's wisdom. Who is it written for? It's written for us. And it's, therefore, it's tailored to human understanding. 
and therefore it's written in a language that we understand. And the Ram goes on to talk about a very interesting dialogue between Moses and God in Exodus 33. This is in the immediate aftermath of the Golden Calf episode. And Moses makes a request from God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. If God is not a body, you can't see it. It's not physical. So what did Moses want to see? Says the Rambam, he wanted to understand and to know the reality of God's existence so that he would know it in his heart the way someone who is familiar with someone else that you meet and their visage, their countenance is kind of fixed in your heart that that person is different than another person. You have familiarity with people that you know and you can pick them out of a crowd. Moses wanted to gain familiarity with the reality of God in the same way that people have familiarity with the faces of people that they know. So too, Moses wanted to understand the reality of God's existence in a way that it's fixed in his heart and it's distinct from other realities that he has in his heart. That's what the, that, that's what, how the Ram explains what this means. Doesn't mean Moses wanted to see something. It means Moses wanted to understand something in a way that it, that, that is visual, in the way that is, it, it's, it's visceral. Meaning that, you know, if you, if you know someone, that you, you, you know your child, you could, you could see them. You could stand a, a group of faces and you could, you can know it, it, it because it creates a certain pathway. In, in your world, you have a connection. You have an intimate kind of visual and visceral connection between the people that you know. And therefore, Moses wanted to know God on a spiritual level in that same way. And what does God respond to him? God says to him, it's not possible for a human, no matter how great that human may be, so long as the human is bound with body and soul, it's not possible for a human to understand that. And therefore, Moses was informed of the reality of God more than any other human previously or or subsequently. But still, he did not achieve that highest level. He could not really understand God, so to speak, in a facial way. God tells him, My face shall not be seen, but you can see my back. And the way the Ramah explains that is that if you get to know someone and you see their their back, it's also a different means. You could kind of tell when you look at someone that you know, you could tell them even from the back, you could have a, you know who they are because you see their back. But if someone you got to know their back, you, you gain a familiarity with them, but it's not the same level of familiarity that you have with them when you see their, their face. So again, what this actually means, it sounds like it's a very Kabbalistic idea that Ram is telling us, but what it, again, his con- the context of it is not to make the mistake, not to conflate this, with Moses trying to understand God in a visual, physical way, Moses trying to understand God in a way that equates to visual and visceral knowledge that we equate with seeing something. To make it, to make it more palpable, more almost sensory, his knowledge of God. And God says, yes, to a limit, the, the back, but not the front. And then he elaborates on the fact that God shares no bodily characteristics. And once it became clear to us, this is the Ramam telling us again in the Mishnah Torah, that God is not a body, we can know that God does not behave like a body. He's separating the idea of 
the essence of God is not bodily, it's not finite, and the behavior of God is also not bodily, it's not finite. Not cohesion, not separation, not place, not measurement, not ascension, not descension, not right, not left, not, not front, not back, not sitting, not standing. All those things that are in our world don't exist by God. Does not exist in time that he should have a beginning and an end and a number of years. How old is God is a ridiculous question. Because if you're infinite, the idea of old, there's no start, there's no end, there's no progression, there's no dynamism in the literal sense. Uh, therefore, that question doesn't make any sense with respect to to God. And it's an interesting word. Like the Ram says, this is a literal translation. It sounds like a very modern formulation. God does not exist in time. Time is, is an existence. God created that. He's not bound by it. God doesn't change because nothing could happen to him that would cause him to change. God cannot live. God cannot die. Again, those are things that dominate or that are realities. In the physical finite world, he is not a body. He does not behave like a body. Therefore, he cannot live, cannot die. Of course, God is alive. It's a reality that's true. It's the most true reality. But the, the term of life and death, being alive and then expiring, is something which, again, applies, a characteristics that apply to, to human-based life, to physical-based life. God cannot be silly. God cannot be smart. Is God smart? So we would all say yes. Of course. Who's smarter than God? That's that. It's technically incorrect because by saying smart, you're equating God to having bodily characteristics, having characteristics of the finite. The Ram tells us his wisdom, his intelligence is not like human intelligence. There's a, a famous uh, tongue twister. People used to ask, can God create a rock that he can't lift? He used, to, he used to hear that. The answer is no, because God is not limited and God cannot create limitations. That, that, that's what the Ramah would tell us here, is that, first of all, the notions, of course, is a ridiculous question. It's not a sophisticated question. But even if we were to address it, we would say is that no, that God is unlimited and that cannot be, limitations cannot be foisted on the infinite being. There's no sleeping, there's no uh, arousal for God, cannot wake up, there's no anger, there's no laughter by God, there's no happiness, there's no joy, there's no sadness. Again, these are all human emotions, even experiences that are reflections of us as a body, as being limited and therefore having ups and downs doesn't apply by God. God cannot be silent, God cannot speak, like human speech. And therefore, in quotes again, the Talmud, there's no standing, there's no sitting, there's no front, there's no back, etc., However, just like we ask the question, God is not a body, and then we see that he is described in the Torah as having a body, well, now we're saying God does not behave like a body, and yet we see the Torah describes him that he behaves like a body. Again, the Ramam addresses these anthropomorphisms. All the matters that it says in the Torah and the prophets, it's all analogy, it's all euphemism. Uh, God's sitting in heaven. God gets angry. Uh, God gets joyous. Again, those are all, those are all speaking to us in a way that we understand. And then it quotes another verse in Jeremiah. Are you making God mad? You're not really making God mad because God cannot get mad by the, by the human definite, by, by our definition of God. And he concludes, if God was sometimes happy and sometimes angry, he would change. God cannot change. God is fixed. God is static. And therefore he cannot change. And therefore, he cannot get angry. He cannot be happy. 
those things only apply to bodies, only apply to physical, material things that are rooted in, in dust. But he, holy one, blessed is he, is exalted above all of this. So that's the concept of the third principle of the Rams 13, the idea that God is not a body, is not, is not finite, is not bound by the constraints of, of physics. He created it, he's not bound by it. I want to point out just a, a valuable insight. Our mandate is to connect to God. And yet we see that the avenues to connect to God are not via the physical. They're via the spiritual. When we talk about prophecy, and of course prophecy is going to be a major subject of the Rambam's 13 that we're going to have to talk about at great length. I don't want to spoil it. But what, what in effect he's telling us is that when we connect to God via prophecy, that's not connection to God via our body. It's connection to God via our soul, which has godly characteristics, has this capacity of being outside of time and space, has the capacity of being infinite, has some overlapping qualities with God. It's from the other realm. Of course, it's not, again, we don't want to run afoul. We don't say it's a part of God or anything like that, but it's very much comparable to God. The body is not comparable to God. The, the soul is. We tap into that and then we have our avenue to connect to God. But that's, that, that's kind of a different subject, but that's an immediate takeaway of, of this idea. Now, I want to read to you another quote from the Rambam, not when he talks about this idea, but when he talks about the people that lose that portion in Olam Abba. This is the Rambam and Laws of Repentance, Laws of Tshuva, Chapter 3, Halacha Number 7. He talks about a min. A min is a heretic. He says there's five different kinds of heretics. Someone who does not believe in God says the world has no overseer. Someone who believes in multiple gods. The world does have an overseer, but there's multiple gods. Someone who says that there is one God, but he is a body or has a form, has an image. And it's an interesting question. Let's say someone just reads the Torah and says, okay, the, the Torah says that God took us out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. So if I ask you a question, simple, just read it. Does God have an arm? And you're a simpleton. You never learned the Rambam. You say, well, I read scripture and it says clearly that he does have an arm. So yes, God does have an arm. The Rambam would say, you're a heretic and you lose your portion of Maba. What the Rambam is telling us is there's zero tolerance for ignorance for lack of knowledge, in these things. And one of the contemporaries of the Rambam, the Rivet, it's quoted by the Kesemish, he says, wait a minute, what if someone makes an innocent mistake? They, they just wanted to do what's right, they wanted to study, and they just didn't know because they weren't trained. So, the Rambam, so he says like this, he says, even though you're right, he's arguing the Rambam, he's saying, you are right that our faith is that God is not a body. It does not behave like a body. Still, the Ravid says, he's going to argue the Rambam. He says, if someone believes that God is a body or is has bodily characteristics because they just read the verses, they read the Midrash, simply, it's inappropriate to call him a heretic. They don't, they don't justly deserve that classification because it's not a her- it's not heresy out of uh, spite. It's heresy out of ignorance. Therefore, they should not be qualified as a heretic. That's what the contemporary of the Rambam argues with the Rambam. 
But the Rambam would seem to say is that there are certain aspects of our faith, of our theology, that are are are, are too important for them to be ignored or them to be not known well enough to not make such a basic mistake. The Talmud tells us that with respect to Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name, regardless if someone is doing it wantonly, willfully, or accidentally, it doesn't matter. This is something so important. You have to be so careful about it to not make this mistake. Even if you make an innocent mistake, an innocent mistake counts against you in these matters. Seemingly, the Rambam understands that matters of basic theology qualify as being issues in which a mistake, and even an innocent mistake, is also not tolerated. Now, I want to read to you an essay that my grandfather wrote on this subject. And I think this, this I think, brings the concept down to us in a way that makes it relevant to us and really presents, I think, the, the challenge that this principle engenders. You know, we are sensory people. We live by, via interfacing with the world with our senses. You know, we see the world, we hear the world, we, we touch it, we could taste it, we could smell it. That's how we interact with the world. And it's very difficult for us to fathom an idea, an entity, a reality that is incapable, that we're incapable of connecting to on a sensory level. Our senses are not going to help us in connecting to God. In fact, quite the contrary. Your senses are more likely to make you ignore God, to make you to obviate the need of God, because after all, you cannot see God with your eyes, and that's how you see reality. And therefore, if you see reality and God's not present, well, what, what conclusion do you come to? You come to that, I, I don't know, where's the evidence? Show me. And therefore, the, this third of the 13th principle really, it, 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 it brings into focus the challenge that we have in trying to develop our spiritual connection to God because there's a conflict here. Our default reality, our default way of seeing the world is via our senses and God cannot be perceived via our senses. And quite the contrary, it does lead us away from God. And what's the whole idea of idolatry? This is the essence of why people made the mistake of idolatry. They wanted to connect to God, but they couldn't do it in a way that wasn't more tangible, more real to them. They felt a need to try to animate God, to equate God in a physical and tangible and palpable and sensory way, and therefore they tried to make representations of God because they wanted to bottle up their spiritual reality in something that they could view as as real. And therefore, we have the whole concept, of course, of idolatry and, of course, the grave prohibition against idolatry because that's making this mistake. But even after Sinai, what happens at Sinai? The people have the most transcendental experience ever to happen to a nation. And what happens right as a result of that, it carries the risk of taking the wrong lesson, of taking the wrong message, of creating an idolatrous picture out of what they experienced. The the challenge of Sinai, of course, Sinai was a great boon for the Jewish people, 
They got faith in their heart. They got a story to tell their children, and we still tell it to this very day. And they get started getting the Torah. This was a marriage of the two universes, of the two worlds, the spiritual, the physical world are touching. Us humans are acting like angels. It's an amazing thing. So what's the challenge? Everything has to have an equal, if it's good, it's got to have the equal risk in order for it to be fair. So what's the risk? The risk is this point, is that we we become familiar with God and we say, oh, okay, we know that. We, we have the experience of Sinai. We are believers. Here's the golden calf. Let, let's capture it in a way that we could actually connect to it in a sensory way. We, we don't we don't want to lose our connection to God. So immediately at the foot of the mountain, that's where the mistake happens. Specifically, if they didn't have Sinai, they wouldn't have had the golden calf. Because the golden calf is the physical representation of, of God that they felt that they needed because they wanted to have some sort of way to relate to it. And that's why Moses warns them in Deuteronomy 4, and the Ramam warns us, is that you want to have a connection to God, but don't make this mistake of, of trying to animate it. You didn't see an image. Don't fall into the traps of idolatry by trying to equate God with anything physical. He is not a body, and he does not behave like a body. And my grandfather, in his essay, goes on to talk about how, you know, the essence of idolatry is the disbelief in the distinct nature and existence of the spiritual. And therefore, when you have something spiritual, you want to, you want to kind of quantify it in a physical way. You, you want to have some physical representation of it. And that, even though full-fledged idolatry does not resonate with us today, it's very rare to see people that are titulated by going to bow down to idols and uh, idols of, of wood and stone. And of course, there's a great story in the Talmud of how they got rid of the desire for idolatry. But the concept of idolatry still applies. We don't want to bow down to idols, but the essence of idolatry, i.e. the disbelief in the distinct nature and, and, as, and existence of the spiritual, and, and always wanting to make our pursuits for the physical, that still exists. And that's the idolatry of today. It's almost as if the, 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 the desire for idolatry is now couched, is now framed in a different way. It's not about idolatry by making God physical. It's the idolatry of making our desires, our pursuit, our agenda, our priorities, our values, making all that physical. It's the same thing. It's the same undergirding characteristic at play, devaluing the spiritual and only valuing things that you could relate to in a sensory way, but it's just been moved from, from, from one element to, to a second element to forget God and to forget the spiritual by being immersed solely in pursuit of, of, of physicality. And then my grandfather quotes an amazing teaching in the Talmud, which I think kind of brings it a little bit closer to us. It brings it to focus, the challenge, but also the opportunity. Because whenever there's a great challenge, there's a great opportunity as well. So he says... The Talmud tells us, this is in the Jerusalem Talmud in the book of Brachos. The great rabbi said, idolatry, it appears to be close, but it truly is distant. 
whereas God appears to be distant, but is truly close, and there's nothing that is closer than God. And it gives an example. It says the idol, you have the idol in your house. You can see it, you can touch it, you can relate to the in a sensory way. But if you're suffering and you could speak to your God, quote unquote, God with a lowercase g, and you're screaming it to, to, for it to help you and doesn't listen to you, and you're going to die without any help from your, from your idol. It's close to you, yes, physically it's close to you, but spiritually it's very distant for you. It's not very helpful for you. Whereas God is very distant for, from us. Why? Like we said, we're physical, God's spiritual. And then it gives some quantification of this. This is straight up Kabbalah. So we have to understand it uh, with a grain of salt or with a grain of uh, silver. I don't know. But we have to – there has to be some sort of grains in our understanding of this. But it says like this. It says from – quoting again from the, one of the sages of the Talmud. From our land to the spiritual heaven – is the walk of 500 years. And from that heaven to the next heaven is also the walk of 500 years. And there's seven heavens. And then it goes talking about the angels and the wings of the angels and it's how far of the walk it is from just from the body of the angel to the wing of the angel. And again, it's important for us to not get to not get confused, not get caught up with the physicality of that. It's a Kabbalistic idea, and the term 500 versus 400, it's a trope in the Talmud. That 400 is an, is an exaggeration. What I mean, so, so distant, it's 400. And what I mean, 500, it's unfathomably distant. So does it mean that you could walk for 500, if you could theoretically walk uh, heavenly, you'd walk for 500 years, you get to the, the heaven... That's not what it, that's that's a mistake to to misread it like that. God is un, unfathomably distant from us. Yet, what happens? You walk into the to, to shul. You walk into the basic nessus, and you stand by the lectern, and you pray quietly, and you know who's listening. God is listening to you. And Hannah, Hannah, in scripture, she's talking to her heart. She's not the words are not even audible. Her lips are moving, but there's no audible sound emanating from her mouth. And God listens, and God acts, and God and God changes the reality of the world. She's infertile, and now she's fertile. Is there anything that we can have that's closer than that? We pray, and God listens. So yes, God's distant from us, but is there anything in the world that's closer to us than God? That's the paradox that the Talmud tells us. Idolatry, it's very close, yet it's very distant. It's close because it's a physical thing that we could see, that we could connect to in a tangible way, but ultimately for who we really are, for our essence, it doesn't help at all. And that, of course, was applicable in the previous generations with actual idolatry. And today, the modern incarnation of idolatry, same thing. It's very, we can connect to a sensory level, but ultimately, it does nothing for us. Our internal world, our soul, our eternal self, all that does not benefit at all from the physicality. Idolatry, very close, but ultimately, very distant.
Whereas the Almighty, he is close to us with all manners of closeness. But here we're told on the third principle of the Realms 13 to not make the mistake to say, oh, he's so close. Let's make him physical. Let's animate him because that's that, that, that's where we go wrong. We have to keep this paradox, this tension between God being so distant from us, so unfathomable to us, yet being so close to us. And that's the paradox, really, of, of our connection to God. From our physical mindset, from our finite outlook, God's very distant. It's almost impossible for us to not make that mistake. When we pray, when we study Torah, when we try to do spiritual things, to not kind of bridge those two together. We're trying to study Torah, we're trying to pray, and we have to make sure that it's very clear to us that God's essence is beyond human comprehension. And we're praying and we cannot try to make a visual image in our head as much as we want to of God being some sort of physical being. God is not a body. does not behave like a body. Once we have the distance, once we appreciate this third principle, then like our sages tell us that the distance between us and God ultimately is like the distance between someone's mouth and someone's ears. You say something, you hear it, and right away... You're impacted by it. The Messiah Sharon tells us that we should pray as if we're talking to our fellow man in the same manner, and our fellow man is listening to us and wants to help us. We're talking to God. God's there listening to us, wanting to hear us. Is he distant or is he close? Here we're told the third principle, don't make the mistake that the idolaters make by trying to animate God, making him a body. Via our body, this is again the tension, via our body, we want to make everything relatable, everything sensory. And here we're told to connect to God, we have to tap into our soul, tap into our capacity to see the spiritual reality as real. By doing that, we're banishing the idolatry By doing that, we're banishing the physicality within us, our drive for physicality, and we're developing an avenue to connect to God. And just broadly speaking, a mitzvah, Torah, all that, like what does that do? What does that, how does that operate within us? The sages tell us and experience demonstrates that Torah and mitzvos, what they do is they heighten our connection to our soul. They amplify our soul within us. It begins to capture a larger share of our identity. It becomes more real progressively as we do more mitzvos. And therefore, we begin to be able to start seeing the world like our soul sees the world, to see the spiritual reality as being valuable and tangible, not just the physical reality, and thereby it opens up the avenues of us connecting to God, not in a simplistic way, 
not in an idolatrous way, God forbid, not by saying, oh, the only thing that's real is the physical and therefore God must be physical if it's possible for him, for us to connect to him. Instead, we begin to connect to God on a spiritual plane via our newfound, heightened spiritual identity. So that's the third principle, the principle of God not being a body nor behaving like a body and us not connecting to him on a physical plane, but on a spiritual plane.